0: A podcast from Premiere Unbelievable.
1: Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. Oh. Yeah, it's good to be here. And today, as you may have spotted from the title of this Episode We are looking at the interesting question of psychedelics and, in particular, psychedelic drugs in the use uh, for treating mental health conditions. Um, And this is prompted by a really interesting question we got sent in by a listener called Christian. So, thank you, Christian. And Christian says, This um, I'm not sure it's been talked about much in the UK yet, but at least in the US, there's been a lot of legalization in the field of psychedelic substances in an effort to promote research and treatment of mental health conditions using things like psilocybin, ketamine, LSD, etc. Many startup companies are advertising home ketamine services on Facebook or social media, and the safety, effectiveness, and ethics are questionable. I've actually tried a home ketamine service and have some mixed feelings about the overall experience. I'm curious to hear more information on the Christian perspective on this new treatment avenue, especially with how much stigma surrounds the substances at hand. Perhaps it's something Christians should avoid, or is it an effective new form of treatment for our rampant mental health crisis?
2: Interesting stuff. Um, So you could ask whether we are the right people to be discussing (laughs) brain altering psychedelic chemicals, because I have to say my own personal experience, Tim, is pretty limited, but I don't know what you've been up to.
1: No comment. (laughs) Uh, very little experience uh, of of brain-altering, mind-altering drugs. But I have certainly been observing in kind of popular culture and in the news media, it feels like a shift over the last 10 years where, you know, when I was a child growing up, LSD was this kind of like kooky thing. I was vaguely aware they did some weird stuff in the 60s, but then it's just been illegal for ages and it's just used by people in kind of raves and things. Um, and likewise with, you know, magic mushrooms or psilocybin or ketamine. And and now suddenly there's definitely a sense in which these have kind of re-entered the mainstream in a kind of non-furtive criminal sense, in that there are people openly talking about micro-dosing LSD to give them more concentration at work or, you know, encouraging uh, states to to legalize the use of other various other psychedelic drugs for, for health benefits. So it's certainly kind of in the conversation. And as Christian says, apparently you can even get ketamine by post these days in the states.
2: Yeah, it's interesting how these things uh, change that um, there was a a whole area of fascination of this in the 50s and 60s uh, when LSD had been recently synthesized and was uh, was being widely experimented with by scientists as well as by hippies and (laughs) experimenters. Um, But then uh, authorities stamped down on the whole thing and it became... Uh, illegal and uh, persecuted drug users were were persecuted so as you say it's been through a whole period where uh, the use of mind-altering drugs has been heavily frowned on by society although of course it's carried on underground
1: yeah and i guess um, while it feels quite fresh and quite new if you actually look into the history of psychedelics some of them are are kind of primarily unlike LSD are actually primarily derived from kind of naturally occurring plants and have actually been kind of well recognized and used the evidences by humans for potentially thousands of years.
2: Yes and, and, and this is a kind of fascinating deep history isn't it of these substances like the magic mushrooms and from various other beans and Uh, plants that over the millennia um, various shamans and and healers uh, found out that these there were compounds and extracts which had the effect of of creating a kind of hallucinogenic state uh, perceptual distortions and a kind of mystical experiences and so these have been widely used by, by shamans both for themselves to experience uh, the gods or spirits speaking to them or mystical experiences, but also by giving them to the acolytes. The acolytes, too, were able to experience
1: what what they anticipated that the spirits would speak to them. And I think, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but I, I do have vague recollection there's, that there is evidence in some kind of, uh, ancient communities, actually kind of the source of the status and the power of the shamanic class was the fact that they alone knew either, you know, where to find the particular leaf or mushroom or how to prepare it is so as to produce the effect. And that was actually, it was so kind of prized or so valued that the fact that this kind of elite guild or class of of status in, people in, in society, that that was how they kind of founded their power on the fact that they alone were the gatekeepers to these mystical, mind-altering, spiritual, you know, and in some of these kind of proto-religions, this was the kind of way you experience God. And so it Mm. gives the priest, as it were, enormous um, social status and power if they alone control who can and cannot experience God. Absolutely.
2: And also I think this illustrates a very foundational point about these drugs and chemicals, and that is that the experience you have when you take these chemicals seems to be very much modulated by your expectations, and by the context in which you take them. So so if you are part of a culture which is absolutely convinced about the uh, presence of spirits everywhere and uh, and these spirits as powerful and speaking forces, if if that's your culture, that's what you've been educated in, and then you take these substances in the presence of a shaman who invokes the spirits to to appear uh, it's not surprising that uh, then people come to see here and experience the spirits that they expected to encounter and so what happens is the drugs help to concretize, to embody. so you had this theoretical idea that there were spirits mm-hmm. everywhere, but now I've taken the drug I've actually heard them, I've seen them. I've experienced what the spiritual world is like. it's something
1: that I've, I've touched and experienced. So this was a kind of well-established part of human practice in many different cultures around the world for thousands of years. Does it kind of die out in the kind of Abrahamic monotheistic religious era where we're less interested in finding kind of spirits in nature? But you know, is there a what 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 happens to psychedelics in the kind of modern era before we kind of rediscover things like LSD in the twentieth century? Well, it is interesting to reflect, isn't it, on on the biblical
2: period because I think it's generally regarded that animism, the the view that all material realities are invaded and and energised by spirits and that you have to get in touch with the spirits of particular objects and places and so on, um, that that what uh, biblical... The Old testament period did is is it replaced that by the one creator God it didn't deny the existence of other spirits um but there was one creator God who was the ultimate power and source of spiritual authority in the universe and who forbade um worship of other spirits and idols and and demonic forces and so on uh so i I think you you get from the old testament period this strong condemnation of those who seek to invoke uh, other spirits those who use divinization or necromancy or whatever it is and i'm mm. sure that
1: included using magic mushrooms or yeah. other other chemicals and there's even a kind of mocking isn't there you see that in parts of the old testament where the the authors kind of mock these kind of helpless idols of wood or stone or metal that the other surrounding kind of pagan nations worshipped, and kind of gave imagined or gave life to in comparison to the kind of awe-inspiring invisible, but true, true kind of creator God. So I think there is a sense in which like, you know, you don't need to go messing around in nature to, to look for, for God when he has, you know, revealed himself through, the Torah and you know can be found in in the kind of schedule of sacrifices and festivals as it's kind of laid out in 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 the Pentateuch but- yeah
2: I, I think that's absolutely right and yet it is interesting isn't it, it is that alcohol as another mood-altering drug mm. uh, is never in the Hebraic tradition is, is never prohibited or in and in fact you know uh, the wisdom literature speaks about alcohol that makes glad the heart of man, that 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 the appropriate use of alcohol um, mm. has always been seen as um, as part of Hebraic religion. And that's true today, isn't it, of the Orthodox uh, Jewish fraternity are really quite open to using alcohol in ceremonies and mm. wine, various cups of wine are used in the in the ceremonies um and and this is not seen as something which is somehow inappropriate or potentially i mean drunkenness is never is never supported and and but nonetheless the appropriate use of alcohol
1: is Hmm. i mean you see there's lots of stories aren't there where people get drunk and come to sticky ends going back to noah and genesis and you know various kings and things like that and Um, So, yeah, it's clear that there's a kind of disapproval of people who abuse alcohol, or at least a sense in that abusing alcohol leaves you kind of vulnerable and, uh, you know, more likely to to sin. Um, But no, you're right. It's clearly there's no there's no kind of disapproval of it. And, And fundamentally, the only reason really we don't include alcohol among kind of hallucinogenic drugs It's probably because it's utter familiarity because it's so it's, you know, it's so basic. It's so it's everywhere. You know, anytime sugar starts, you know, something starts to ferment and it produces alcohol. So but um, we we don't think of it as this kind of even as a drug in itself, even though actually in many ways it can, you know, alter your mind, your mood. uh, It can change your thoughts. It can make you see things that aren't there. Uh, in In similar ways and you see, and all the way through to the New Testament, you see Jesus is again very alcohol is a kind of ordinary everyday part of his cultural existence, from the miracles like turning water into wine, but also through to the 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 Passover meal where he institutes the lord 's Supper you know with the cup of wine there is a kind of foundational ritual element of of Christian worship yes indeed, and yet when you see the litany of damage that ethanol has done. Hmm. uh for the
2: on the human race, you know the fact that it's it's a very simple molecule and and it just gets across the blood brain barrier uh because it's a solvent and once it's into the brain, it just has a whole complex effects on on brain chemicals and so on and and you know i've sometimes thought you know what a catastrophe that such a simple molecule has led you know and which as you say happens whenever fermentative reactions occur. And yet it has this absolutely catastrophic, you know, how much male abuse of women, how much uh, abuse of children, how, how much drunkenness on the roads and, uh, and violence and, and so on has been created by this simple,
1: simple yeah. molecule. I mean, got, I think we'll come back to it later in the podcast when we talk about kind of Christian think thoughts on kind of mind altering substances and where alcohol fits into that. But let's let's continue sketching the kind of story forward. So we now reach the kind of 20th century and there's this kind of resurgence of interest in in psychedelic drugs around the time that you kind of psychiatry and modern psychology starts to evolve, um, you know, thanks to people like Freud and Carl Jung and things like that kind of and it kicked off by the discovery of lsd in a swiss lab i think it is in in the 1940s and and that's often picked up primarily as a kind of military focus is that right well i th- I think there was a lot of interest in it by
2: psychiatrists but one of the ideas was that it was a truth drug and therefore injecting uh captured uh, prisoners or potential spies or whatever uh, and uh, so that, so there was there's a very murky history of um, secret services and and uh, using this drug and, and I think it turns out that it isn't a truth drug. It just causes people to invent and confabulate mm-hmm. uh, information. Not, but it doesn't necessarily uh, r- reveal the truth that they're keeping hidden. No, um, but. It, yeah certainly then psychiatrists get very interested in it uh, and and you know this idea that it's a sort of a way of understanding psychosis because when people take lsd they have hallucinations visual hallucinations auditory hallucinations they have a kind of sense of a dissolution of the self and so the psychiatrists thinking gosh this will really help us understand uh, about psychosis and, and and
1: maybe also help in therapy hmm and then of course the 60s kicks off the counterculture explodes the sexual cultural revolution people get really into drugs in a big way <laughs> i'm told i wasn't there I, I understand and um and there's a kind of a backlash a- and this kind of nascent flowering of research into psychiatric uses and therapeutic uses for psychedelic drugs is kind of strangled at birth because suddenly uh is a, there's a a massive scare around you know the young people using lsd and dropping acid in parties and and you know hippies and dropping out and suddenly we're all panicking or we must prohibit these things completely
2: i've just remembered a very good friend of mine who was a a hippie in the 1970s in uh san francisco uh, and he he was dropping acid like it was and he told me Once he had the experience of driving when he was on acid, he was driving his car, and he suddenly got the idea that the white lines of the of the road were going over his head, and that he was somehow navigating (laughs) his way. (laughs) It was absolutely amazing that he's still alive. Somehow he managed to survive, and then became a Christian and turned his back on his previous his
1: previous life. Wild child. uh, This this was fairly common, I think, in in the culture at the time. And so by kind of the mid to the late 60s, a a lot of countries have actually criminalized the use of LSD and ketamine and uh, these various other magic mushrooms. The the ingredient, the active ingredient there is called psilocybin. Um, And so a lot of the kind of promising research by on the kind of scientific side is also kind of shut down because it's just not really the done thing to be be, um, looking into this during the kind of so-called war on drugs which then rages on from the kind of 70s, probably through until the 2000s before, is that fair to say people start the kind of first renaissance of interest in the kind of scientific therapeutic use of these drugs starts to reemerge? Yeah, well, that's right. And so many pharmacologists and psychiatrists
2: and people who are interested in these drugs used to say, and I think justifiably, that you know the state doesn't try to ban ethanol and yet the proven damage of ethanol is vastly or cigarette smoke is vastly in excess of any potential damage from these weird chemicals. And so um, eventually uh, the climate changes as more and more uh, interest and, uh, and, and approved experiments are now taking place under carefully controlled circumstances. and, and, rather surprisingly it turns out that actually there's there's quite a lot of scientific evidence of of genuine benefit for certain groups
1: of patients with severe psychiatric disorders i mean that's what i wasn't really sure about when this question came in i think it's a really interesting question but i, I know i haven't i wasn't i knew that people were trying this stuff. i didn't know if, is it, whether there's actually evidence that it worked you know i mean i'd kind of watched with interest maybe a, a few years earlier there was a kind of similar wave of Kind of legalization of marijuana for medicinal purposes, you saw that particularly in the united states several several of the states began at first to say, well you know you can you can have small amounts of marijuana at home for medicinal purposes.' Uh, and it seemed quite obvious to me that this was a kind of bit of a ruse and that there were lots and lots of doctors who would happily write had a prescription to almost anyone who, who could get hold of marijuana. And it, as it turned out, in most places, this was a, really a precursor. And a few years later, they've lots of states have now gone the whole hog and, and re-legalized marijuana for recreational leisure purposes. So I genuinely wasn't sure whether something similar was happening with psychedelics but you're saying that actually the studies are in and and there is proven scientific clinical study evidence that these can help
2: yeah i i think that's certainly my impression i mean the, the proven medical benefits of marijuana are actually very very small and uh you know the controversial there may be rare situations where they have something to offer but um double blind trials in for instance patients with quite severe treatment resistant depression uh using ketamine uh, as an example have shown uh you know significant improvements and um similarly for uh, some patients with post traumatic stress disorder and other um uh, you know severe uh, psychiatric problems there is certainly growing evidence that used properly and under appropriate controls uh, a range of these drugs can have can have benefits. I, I think, however, I, th- I think one has to be cautious because there are there are factors pushing this, and in particular, commercial companies. I mean, Big Pharma is
1: getting dollar signs in its eyes. Hmm. Do we know how they work? Do we understand the mechanism? Because it seems odd to me that you know something like LSD, which clearly kind of produces hallucinations how would that help treating someone who's already struggling with psychosis as a mental health condition that just seems kind of counterintuitive?
2: Yeah, and the honest answer is nobody really knows, but there are lots of theories. Um, And I think, uh, so LSD and, and psilocybin and so on, these drugs primarily work in terms of creating hallucinations, both visual and auditory hallucinations, and, and also what's sometimes called the dissolution of the sense of the self, that you you just suddenly lose the sense of, of being the self. And, and they seem to disrupt the, the connections in the brain, the normal routine connections. And the theory is that um, by disrupting these uh, connections, in some way you render... The brain more malleable and it facilitates the creation of new patterns of thought and behavior and therefore it's possible that in certain circumstances where someone has just got locked into repetitive thoughts um, uh, maybe from traumatic experiences of the past uh, that by taking these drugs it doesn't solve everything but it creates an opportunity for fresh new patterns. And I think what this emphasizes is that, is that the context in which you take it and taking this with a really experienced psychotherapist or psychiatrist, who's able to use this kind of breaking down a rigid previous patterns to help someone find a more creative way. I, I, I think that that's certainly uh, a quite well accepted theory about how these things might work and there is some neuroscience evidence
1: to support it are, are there risks involved i mean these clearly aren't these probably aren't silver bullets i'm guessing what is the dangers of kind of go, delving too far down this road of treatment
2: yeah well I, I, and i think you know surprise surprise the more that these are used the more it becomes apparent there are risks and you know this this is a kind of a um i think we've talked about this before haven't we there's one of the cardinal rules of biology is the more powerful a drug is you know the more it has really significant biological effects the more likely it is to be have side effects and to be dangerous and part of the reason why i personally am very skeptical about homeopathic homeopathic remedies is that the Practitioners say, "Oh, it has absolutely no known side effects," and and a drug which has no known side effects almost by definition doesn't do anything. (laughs) Whereas the drugs which we know have real biological effects, drugs like morphine or aspirin or you name it, these drugs have significant side effects. So, so yeah, I I think the worry there is evidence they might trigger somebody who's got a a tendency towards psychosis. a drug not surprisingly lsd might actually trigger an acute psychotic episode um by re-experiencing you know trauma from the past it might actually have an adverse effect it might reinforce Mm. traumatic experiences make them even worse or or the very process of taking the drug might you know people know there's something called a bad trip you know where you you take the lsd and you have horrific nightmares and terrible frightening experiences this might actually re-traumatize somebody make next situation worse
1: Mm.
2: and and i think there's evidence that when it's they used repeatedly uh you can get a kind of permanent uh distortion of perception you know permanent hallucinations uh, and perceptual distortions so there's no doubt at all that these things do have potential damaging effects and that's why they must be used with great care and and at present, I think they should be used as part of a, a proper scientific trial.
1: Hmm. And there are other categories of drugs as well that, that people are experimenting with that aren't kind of hallucinogenic, but seem to also be effective as, alongside kind of traditional talking therapies. Yeah, so ketamine
2: is, is, an, is a different group of drugs. These don't seem to create hallucinations, but they do put people into a sort of weird trance-like state, which is what's co- why they're called dissociative. Uh, and but they they do seem to be working on different chemicals and and there is evidence that they can uh, help in in patients with severe depression uh, but although again they have risks of abuse and toxicity and then the third category of drugs is MMDA. um, you know drugs like ecstasy and so on and these seem to have a, a, a kind of uniquely pro social effect they they make people more Uh, collaborative and trusting and and so again the theory here is if you're doing it with a really skilled psychotherapist that the mmda will help you to feel really trusting of the psychotherapist and and the so-called therapeutic relationship is enhanced
0: Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable Going Strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.
1: Okay, so that's where we're up to. Um... I imagine there's a whole heap of studies going on and so if we were to redo this episode in 5 years time I'm sure there'd be even more interesting things to talk about but should we kind of zoom out to think about what do we think about this movement in psychiatry and science and popular culture are we are we relaxed about the idea of fiddling with brain chemistry and giving ourselves deliberate hallucinations for kind of therapeutic use how do we feel about that
2: yeah, I mean, I just want to flag up again this this commercial element, which, which should make you, give you pause, you know, that there are huge profits to be made here because um, pharmaceutical companies, they don't like antibiotics because you only have to take them once or twice. And then, you know, but they love drugs that you have to take week after week after week after week because that's where the profits are. And so drugs which deal with mental health issues and which require repeated even dosage at low, low doses and so on is, is like just a wonderful opportunity for big pharma. He said rather (laughs) cynically. And, and so I I think you just have to think, you know, what is driving this? Is, is this really pure science? Yes, there is some pure science here, but one just has to look for the power relations and, and the, um, so, so, that's one element i think for caution but it is fascinating isn't it to think more widely about what does this take us as a christian so i mean you know straight question if you you know had some mental health issue and you went to see your uh dgp and you got referred to a psychiatrist and they said i really think that some psilocybin <laughs> could help you and yes you know you might have some weird experiences but i think this could really help you know how how would you feel about it uh,
1: <laughs> to be honest uh not not great um and i guess i'm kind of like interrogating myself why i would have that reaction because you know i'm <laughs> I tend to be a kind of, you know, evidence led scientific guy where, you know, if the science is in and it's, you know, who am I to, you know, I don't want to let my emotions run over my reason. And at the same time, that's also partly why I'm so reluctant. And it's, you know, it's my own personality. I was a very boring teenager. I didn't experiment with drugs and alcohol. I had genuinely less than zero desire to get drunk or high because I have a kind of horror of the idea of losing control and right. and not being yourself. And I think even if this was a kind of sober NHS consultant professional saying, I think you should take some magic mushrooms for your mental health condition, <laughs> it would still be hard for me to override that fear of loss of control. And what I'm trying to figure out is, is that a just a kind of personality think quirk that I need to get a grip on and be stop being so precious? Or actually is there something good about seeking to retain your self-control you know and and not seeking to mess around with your brain chemicals and alter your experience of the world even if it might have some kind of beneficial impact i'm, I'm really unsure about about that yeah
2: well i you know i have a lot of sympathy with that and and, and just thinking in the new testament where paul says don't be drunk with wine but be filled with the spirit and Mm. i think what most new testament commentators say there is not so much that the euphoric experience of wine and the euphoric experience of the spirit are similar but it's a question of who is controlling you what what is the controlling force in your life if you get drunk you're allowing ethanol and drugs to become a controlling force in your life whereas actually we're called not to let that happen, but instead to allow the spirit to to direct us and be the motivating and controlling force in our lives. Mm. Uh, and, of course, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that that does involve our brains, That that all experiences we have, all conscious awareness, all relationships – are mediated through our brains and therefore you could argue there's a duty to keep our brains protected as much as possible
1: i hear that but then i guess the counter argument is or well, hold on this is kind of reifying the brain above all other parts of our bodies if we believe that we are created holistically by god then the brain is one organ of many and would be perfectly relaxed about taking antibiotics some kind of chemicals, bringing them into our system to mess around with how our Im- immune system works for a therapeutic, proven therapeutic benefit. Or other people might take statins to mess around with their blood pressures. Or people take uh, contraception, which is based on hormones to fiddle with their endocrine system. But suddenly when we take psych- psychedelics to fiddle with our brain chemicals and our neurotransmitters, suddenly that crosses the line. Isn't that, isn't that a bit inconsistent?
2: Well, I, you know, I think it's a it's an interesting perspective, and I can certainly hear the power behind that. But I, I think there is another view, and that is to say that, you know, back in the in the biblical world, the understanding of what the brain did was, was rudimentary. I mean, the the biblical anthropology sees the heart as being the core of the personality, and it's in the heart that you think, you know, and it's your kidneys with the seats of the emotions. And 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 what this stuff between your ears does I mean, is anybody's guess. But, it, you know, there were theories that it might be something to do with releasing heat from the body or, you know, it, it didn't seem something that was incredibly important.
1: <laughs> Whereas... Did they not work out that when you cut people's head off, they always yeah, die? I mean, if you, you cut their arms off, they didn't that. always die. Yeah, but I think they thought that
2: was something to do with, you know, losing all the blood and everything. Anyway, you know, don't go there. But um, I, I think now we do have this much more uh a genuine truthful understanding that uh that are, it is our brains that are the seat of our consciousness they are it's the seat of our emotions uh, yes these other things matter i mean you know we're we are a holistic being but but it happens in all that that the brain is important and and therefore that's why i would say you know our bodies as a whole are a temple of the holy spirit and therefore, to be treated with care, but particularly, you could argue that our
1: brains are one particularly important part of that temple. Um, I guess I'm I'm reminded of our episode a while back on dementia, where we talked to Jess about her research into kind of, um, you know, people who are experiencing kind of like severe dementia and and the kind of theology of listening to the wider body, mm. and there's this kind of narrative that. Some strains of Christian thought have kind of unintentionally slipped into a kind of neo platonic idea which places reason and thinking and intelligence and rationality and cognitive ability above all else, and that's why society kind of dismisses people who are um in comas or, or experiencing yeah. severe dementia and nonverbal, but actually as Christians, we should recognize that they can speak and God can speak to them through the rest of their body. Yeah. Even if their brains are, are breaking down. Yeah. How does that fit into this idea that actually the brain is somehow def- different and we shouldn't mess around with it. Like we would mess around with other parts of our bodies.
2: Yeah. Well, I would argue there are two, there's the two quite different things. I mean, yes, of course, the value of the person is not just the value of their brain. And yes, you can have uh, someone with profound dementia and yet there's still a wonderful, unique person made in God's image that we're in relation with and all, all, all the same. However, I think we just have to recognize that what severe dementia does is, is it's a terrible destructive effect on people's ability to relate to the world and, and to one another. I mean, you know, when, when, my mother, who you can hardly remember, um developed dementia and was transformed in front of our eyes from this lovely, vivacious, responsive, intelligent woman into someone who 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 was locked inside their own head, who found it impossible to put any words who to communicate, and so on. There was a terrible sense of loss of, of, of that's what brain damage does, you know. Brain, um, and and I I think we shouldn't minimise the mm. um, the terrible consequences of because it it illustrates how central our brains are. Then you know the the importance that doing them. I mean, it's interesting. I there's a I would quote that well known philosopher J.K. Rowling, <laughs> who. Uh, <laughs> Has has a, a very profound bit in in believe it or not Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. <laughs> <laughs>
1: First time we've quoted Harry Potter, I think, on this
2: podcast. <laughs> so I can't remember all the details, but basically Harry has been having some utterly weird experiences about the um, fights of things going on inside his head, uh, and, and 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 these experiences he's trying to get his head around, and 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 then Dumbledore appears, the hero, you know, the, the wise wizard. And Harry says, tell me one last thing, said Harry. Is this real or has this been happening inside my head? And Dumbledore beams at him and he says, of course it's happening inside your head, Harry. But why on earth should that mean that it is not real?
1: Hmm. And actually,
2: I think that's quite profound, you know, that, that yes, all our experience of reality is mediated through our heads, through our minds, through our brains. But... Uh, that doesn't mean that there isn't an external reality which are which are being mediated. So, I th- I think that I uh, I would argue that that it it has been the the basic Christian position for two thousand years that we should protect our bodies as a whole, treat them as temples, protect them from harm, and not abuse them, and that given our current understanding now of the significance of the brain and, and neuroscience, that particularly applies to protecting and treating our our brains appropriately. And 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 when you take these incredibly powerful chemicals which which cause a kind of internal anarchy, hmm. I think there are real questions about, you know, is that appropriate?
1: And I guess you have to worry as a Christian as well. As you say, so much of our relationship with God is mediated through our brain and our perceptions. You know, when we talk about, you know, whether that's as simple as, you know, trying to read and discern the Bible, but also in prayer, trying to listen to God speaking to us in various ways, it all takes place in our heads on the whole. Admittedly, some people who are (laughs) do have kind of miraculous, visible or auditory experiences of God, but it's fairly rare in my experience. Um, Does that give you pause then to say, hang on, let's not, even if it's in a kind of clinical, therapeutic, scientific sense, I don't want to take LSD because there's a risk, therefore, that I might have a false experience of God or an experience of a false God or or something like that. And it actually leads us away from the real God because we're, that we're putting a veil between us and us and him.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, again, have a particular take on this because uh, some years ago I had an experience of a severe psychotic episode which, which came out of the blue. Uh, and i did have very strong uh, delusion what te- what subsequently turned out to be illusion that god was speaking to me that he was giving me special insights and um a, a, a sense of megalomania as well to be honest and then when when all that dissipates and i come back to planet earth and realize that this has just been some kind of weird delusion inside my head there was there was a huge sense of disillusionment and and even a period when I felt very angry with God that he had been um, toying with me, leading me, you know, deceiving me and that really this was just weird stuff going on in my head.
1: And did it make you kind of rethink your own personal spirituality after that experience? Were you more kind of cautious about charismatic experiences in, in in christianity well certainly in the recovery phase
2: i absolutely was i i felt i overreacted because this was just all so so frightening and i was terrified of going back of having a recurrence with these weird um thoughts in my head and and so for quite a long time i steered very clear i steered clearly away from anything that might stimulate these uh these psychotic ideas and and wanted to yeah steer away from any kind of miraculous uh, inexplicable element uh to the faith and it took a long time you know the process of trying to get your head around it and re establish an equilibrium and try and incorporate these weird experiences into my understanding both of myself and of the world and of god it took a long time years uh and you know i mean this happened 20 years ago and to some extent i may I wonder whether i'm still in yeah. processing it and getting my head around it you know i mean these these kind of life-changing episodes affect you for a very long time but i would say that now that i feel my equilibrium is restored it hasn't i i remain really you know very positive towards contemplative prayer and an appropriate use of Christian mysticism.
1: I guess one of the things that really fascinates me about these kind of stories is it's very common when you read about people experiencing delusions and psychosis to, for them to have a kind of religious or spiritual tinge. And, you know, people often report in psychiatric wards about listening, hearing from God, hearing voices, believing that they are a prophet or an angel or, or or a, a messenger from God. Um, how, how do psychiatrists go about determining you know what what is what is psychosis what is delusion and what is fake and what or and saying actually some of that is just a particular spiritual experience that we might not share because we're not christians but it's not really us to therapeuticize it or to to problematize it
2: yeah and certainly this is why you know all psychiatry has to be practiced with a real understanding of the cultural context and the the background of, of any one individual um, what's what's fascinating is that you can see there are sort of common threads in psychosis so even though the way that psychosis is expressed in different cultures there are sort of common threads so 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 one of the common ideas in psychosis is that your mind is in some way being controlled and in people who come from a an animistic tradition they would often say there's spirits, or someone's put an evil eye on me and is controlling my thoughts for people who come from a monotheistic religion they would say that god is is controlling my thoughts then in, in the space era i oh know the, the, the invention of then it was gas yes yeah, so gas someone's putting gas into my uh room and is changing my thoughts then it was radio waves uh okay. and then it was aliens in space are beaming thoughts um, so you can see how there's a f- sort of common experience mm. which is fundamental there, but it's interpreted yeah. according to the particular cultural context. So so it, you could say that it's not surprising that for me, who comes from a strong Christian background, that when my thinking gets very disordered, the natural thing to think is that this is God in some way uh, or spiritual forces. Um and, and therefore, recognizing this sort of common response. I, I think it ha, I have heard it said that there is, there's a specific phenomenon in psychiatry which is rare, but which is much closer to what you, we recognize as a demonic possession in the New Testament. And the interesting thing about the demonic possession is that it isn't this sort of general chaotic. Uh, disordered thinking there is a very specific resistance to Jesus the presence of Jesus mm. and there's also um a kind of spiritual insight so the rabbis and the pharisees had no insight into who Jesus was and bizarrely it was the people who were demon possessed who said we know who you are the son of the living god mm. um so there are features about uh, this particular uh, form of possession which are quite different from psychosis in general. And I have heard it said, some psychiatrists say, they do on occasion recognize something similar today. And often there's a history of occult
0: hmm.
2: practices um, and, and some kind of def- def- definitely occult element.
1: And so to put the question back at you then, put you on the spot, imagine that you next go for your regular checkup with your psychiatrist and he says, you know what, John, we, we've, we've, we've decided we've got some new studies out that tell us that actually it's really helpful for your condition to try ketamine. Would you be up for it? Or would you say, do you know what, I'm, I'm good? And
2: the honest answer is it would, t- it would depend on how desperate I was. I mean, having experienced severe mental health difficulties, I know how utterly debilitating and completely trapping it could be. And, you know, by God's grace I managed to find healing and recovery, um, and and, and found a reasonably sane equilibrium although you may dis- <laughs> differ from that at times but you know if if i was completely overwhelmed by terribly severe depression so much so that i just couldn't do anything my life was destroyed by it then i i could imagine that i would you're know, almost prepared to try anything hmm. so it's it's the level of desperation i think but i would only want to do it in a properly controlled trial with properly qualified psychiatrists and so on. But I can imagine under certain desperate circumstances, yes.
1: Okay, and then coming into land then, how do we think as Christians about wider culture's kind of interest and enthusiasm for this? Because it's not even just in kind of psychiatric settings. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, it's it's not uncommon for Silicon Valley executives to microdose LSD at the start of a working day. Um, there's a kind of in- increasing interest in kind of nootropic Um, drugs that that are purely kind of synthetic and formed in labs that might help with memory or with sleep or with various other kind of tasks these are not treating anything particularly medically wrong with us but they're ways that kind of people feel like well why shouldn't i enhance my brain with the with this kind of new wave of of chemistry Is, is that something that we should be skeptical of as christians well i think there's no doubt that there's a kind of neuroscientific turn isn't there
2: about this period of world history it's like it's an idea whose time has arrived that mm. so many human ills can be traced to the brain. I mean I think this is this is where your criticism that this is a kind of reification of focus on the brain it is is definitely has has weight, you know, that there's something about if only we can understand how our brains work and modulate them to to, you know, make them work better more to become brighter and have better memories and more focus and more attention
0: mm.
2: and sleep better you know we're going to beat the we're going to beat the competition we're going to be out there we're going to live the life we're going to be and this is a kind of weird kind of idolatry isn't it of and um, but it's a it's a materialist idolatry you know it, it it makes sense to a materialist it makes sense to a someone who says yeah the brain is just it's just wiring and chemicals so why not take control why not
1: uh, reprogram just yeah. a computer right yeah yeah re- but of reprogram. course
2: there's a huge philosophical incoherence here because you say okay i the choosing self decide how to change my brain and then you say well hang on a minute what is that choosing self? Well, it's a product of my brain, isn't it? It's just, it's produced by my neurons firing. So so this thing produced by your neurons is now deciding to change and manipulate your brain. I mean, it doesn't work. There's a there's a terrible incoherence yeah. in this kind of neuroscientific perspective. You know, you, you can either have neuroscience or you can have f- free choice, but you can't
1: have them both. <laughs> and I think it speaks to me of this kind of, desperate yearning for a spiritual a spiritualism a spirituality in society we've jettisoned organized religion long ago we tried out kind of arid sterile new atheism and chucked that away and now it's like what's next it going to do ayahuasca ceremonies in mexico on spring break weekend because it gives me this kind of glance glimpse into the numinous and it is this society is is desperate to try and find that there is something more than just a nine to five grind in atoms and molecules, but they don't believe in God anymore. And so they're saying, well, can I find it in some kind of quasi-scientific, quasi-spiritual blurring of the boundaries through psychedelic experiences? And and it just feels a bit sad. It feels a bit tragic to me <laughs> that people are looking for something, but they're trying to find it at the, in in LSD. <laughs> absolutely.
2: But I th- I think you're you're absolutely right. It is ultimately a religious quest for some. And it, you know, it's it's the phrase of the mysticism of the materialist. You know, I don't believe in spirits. I don't believe in transcendence. I don't believe there's anything more than physics. But I still have this yearning for a mystical experience. And you know, I could go on and have twenty years of Eastern meditation and and live. But on, on the other hand, I could just take this wonderful pill over a weekend and have it all bang. You know, and then go back to work on Monday morning. <laughs>
1: Enlightened and renewed and refreshed and re-inspired to make my boring AI startup <laughs> make a few more dollars before it gets bought out by Meta. It, it this could be a, a, a caricature, <laughs> by any
2: chance? Not at him? all.
1: Okay. Final question, then. In, in the wake of this context and this yearning for transcendence, and a kind of should Christianity lean into that? Should we dial up the transcendent elements of our faith? You know, I can imagine all the charismatics, all the Pentecost listening, and are like, "Great, let's do more." you know, nights of miraculous healing and words of signs of power and wonder. And let's lean into tongues and prophecy and all the kind of mystical, supernatural, dare I say, psychedelic elements of Christianity.
2: (laughs) Well, provided it's truth, you know, ultimately it's all, it's about authenticity. It's about truth. It's not about counterfeit sham um, generating a feeling. And I think there is a risk, isn't there, in the charismatic end of the spectrum that you know if we only our music is loud enough and the light show is really you know amazing, and then we've got the dry ice, you know, and then we're really gonna have this spiritual experience of you know I'm afraid there's another caricature, but the, the, there's an element of truth in that, isn't there that that we're somehow engineering feelings whereas you know, the God who speaks in silence, it, 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 it's it's an authentic encounter with the true God, the one true God. Surely that's what we should be longing for, however it comes and however it's mediated through our own brain chemicals
1: and our culture. And it strikes me that, that so much of what we've been talking about is incredibly individualistic attempts to reach the numinous and the transcendent. It's <clears throat> you and your therapist in a counselling room, or it's you know you in your in your studio apartment dropping acid and actually there's something really profoundly unhelpful about that about not doing this kind of stuff in community and when you go back to the the new testament and you read paul trying to give kind of guidance and oversight and a framework for these new christian communities he's planted who are experimenting with the power of the holy spirit his answer is always like do this together Keep your feet on the ground. If you have a word of knowledge, test it against someone else. If you're speaking in tongues, wait for another member of the body to come forward and offer a, a, a translation. And there's a sense in which if we are going to, you know, delve into the kind of more esoteric or supernatural elements of of life, then we need to do it in a whiz, in a wise way, and that involves discerning as a community of believers, not one. Charismatic individual surging off of themselves and suddenly proclaiming themselves that they've got a special word from God because they had a vision or something.
2: Absolutely, I, th- I think you know that you've you've hit the nail on the head. That it's community and and Jesus, you know, those profound words. Therefore, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in midst. So so if we wish to have an encounter with the living God, ultimately it is going to be in community with His people.
1: Right. Well, we've come a long way uh, from, from psychedelics, but thanks so much for joining us on this journey. I hope you found it an interesting conversation. Uh, thank you again to Christian, who sent in the question that inspired this episode. Um, please do keep sending in your ideas, your questions, your feedback, your comments. We really enjoy reading your thoughts and it generates really, hopefully, interesting conversations like this one. So please do email us molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. Uh, Don't forget that Dad's got a whole website stuffed full of talks and articles and podcasts and other things to read and listen and watch uh, on all kinds of things. Medical ethics, science, AI, Christianity, Bible teaching. That's all. uh, JohnWyatt.com. But otherwise, we'll be back next week with another episode. But until then, bye bye.
0: From Premier Unbelievable.